Well, good Sunday morning to you, church. It's good to be together again, studying around the Word, centering our thoughts around the text, keeping your joy, the heartfelt theology of an isolated prisoner. This is part eight. I want to talk to you about the kind of mind the Holy Spirit creates in the lives of God's people. The text is Philippians chapter 2. There's four verses here. I hope you have a Bible. Let's read it together. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, so notice that so at the beginning. It, it will link us up with what we've been looking at before. That's the connector. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, how are you going to know? How are you going to know when the Holy Spirit's really at work in your mind, in your life? If there's any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, and then he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So then he flips it and he talks about the negative. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but the opposite. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. That's the hard part. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let, let's take just... Uh, a minute and look at where we have been in previous weeks because that helps lead into what we want to study today. Uh, the description of what we are all up against as we follow Jesus in this world, we looked at that last week. It, it runs right from verse 27 of chapter 1 right to the end of the chapter. That's where Paul had said these words. Only, remember the one thing? Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, 127. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are, this is what we looked at last Sunday, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents, so he's, he's assuming opposition, not just for him in Roman prison, but for them in the ordinary church at Philippi. Not frightened by anything, 28, by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them, that's the opponents, of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Then we looked at these words, 29. For it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ. So, for the sake of Christ. This isn't the suffering that comes from uh, cancer or arthritis or kidney stones. This is, this is persecution for the sake of Christ. That's what he's talking about here. It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but suffer for his sake. So he makes it clear again. It's suffering because of their profession of followers of Christ. You're engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, 
and now here that I, I still have. So it's just so easy to miss what Paul really has in mind in those closing verses of that first chapter. I mean, if you read them lightly, you'll think Paul's concern is that these Christians just not be um, overcome by the opposition to their faith. They're to stand and remain firm. And, and he, he does say that. I mean, that's part of it. But it's not the end goal. He tells them the end goal of their standing firm against opposition. The goal of that, he says, well, it's in verses 27 and 28. Let's look at them together. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear, we looked at this, standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. Okay, so why does he want them to stand firm? It's not just for their sake. This is a clear sign to them, the opponents, of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So if you stand firm, he says, people are watching. Enemies are watching. Brothers and sisters in Christ are watching. If you stand firm in the face of opposition, it's a sign to the enemies of, of judgment. God's validating your Christian walk and it makes, it makes their rejection of Christ more culpable. They're more guilty because they've seen your example. Brothers and sisters in Christ, it's a sign to them too. They'll be emboldened. They'll be given courage. They'll be helped. So either way, Paul says, either for enemies of the gospel or friends of the gospel, you standing firm makes a huge difference. But there's something else. Paul isn't just concerned that these Christians stand individually. In other words, when he says stand firm, he doesn't just mean hold on to your convictions about Christ. He means that. But that's not all he's talking about. The specific concern that he has is that the world will look and see not just their convictions, but they'll see their unity. So that whether I come, 27, whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm. That's the conviction side. But they're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side. You get the picture Paul is saying. So the sign that Paul wants enemies and the church, the sign Paul wants everyone to see isn't just the doctrinal correctness that these Christians have in their heart. That's very important. But that's only indirectly what Paul wants. Paul wants observers to see the unity of these Christians together. In fact, it is usually what the New Testament has in mind when it addresses the subject of how the light of the gospel and the truth of Jesus Christ is to shine in this dark world. See, we usually think of the witness of the church as being limited to what is said in the pulpit, what is taught in Bible studies, perhaps even the altar call where people get saved. And all of that's included, but the New Testament frequently has something else in mind when it speaks of the witness of the church to this world. The New Testament usually links the church's witness to the world 
with two things that the world can't help but be amazed at. First, people who don't believe one bit of what we believe, they'll still sit up and take notice the way we respond to suffering and hardship that we don't deserve. That's first. Suffering for Christ. And hanging in there. And second, they'll notice the way we lovingly, lovingly stand side by side with people through all sorts of disagreements, the things that normally tear people apart, that there's a unity there that seems inexplicable to them. And by far, most of the time, that, that is what is meant in the New Testament by our light shining into this dark world. Without this kind of unity, this unified lifestyle, there's no witness to the power of the gospel, even if you and I are handing out tracts 24-7. So our words are important, true enough, because there's a content to our faith, and the words tell what we believe, but, but it's our unity with each other, our love for fellow Christians, all of them, that's what shows the world that what we believe is true. I can tell you my convictions. And then I can show you that my convictions work with the response to suffering and with my unitedness with all believers in the body of Christ. So that's the clear sign that he talks about in 27. Christians stand together in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side. Now, that, and uh, if you're a regular seed reviewer, you're used to this, that's the setting of the stage. That's what we've been looking at. Now let's quickly work our way through the first four verses, the text we read of chapter 2. So point number one. You may want another coffee at this point. Point number one. If you're truly passionate about Christ, there's really only one specific situation that should rob you of your joy. If you're truly passionate about Christ, there's really only one situation that should rob you of your joy. And Paul describes it in our text, Philippians 1, 1 and 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, if there's, if there's any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, look what he says here now. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Joy is really, you get little commentaries on Philippians and almost all of them have the word joy in the title. And, and it's because the theme of joy is it's abundant in this letter. This, though, is one of the few places where Paul talks about his own joy. And if you read it carefully, there's something strange in, in what he says. He calls the Philippian Christians to complete his joy. It's right there. He's complete his joy. So he's saying, you people in Philippi, I'm in prison. You can affect my joy. They can complete it, which also means, I guess, 
that could diminish it. Now, this is amazing when you consider the things Paul has already mentioned in this letter that couldn't diminish his joy. I mean, he writes about being in prison without blinking an eye. He's happy about the chance to advance the witness to Christ throughout the Roman guards. He talks about the possible execution that he's facing, and he has the nerve to call it gain. He talks about those who are slandering him and trying to hurt his reputation. And he says, that's fine as long as Christ is proclaimed. And he looks like he's some kind of superhuman. And then all of a sudden, he doesn't. All of a sudden, his eyes can fill with tears if these Christians aren't living in unity. If there's anything that is stretching them apart instead of knitting them more tightly together, Paul can't stand it. That diminishes his joy. The skies turn gray for him. Nothing else makes him happy. He can think about the resurrection from the dead. He can think about the second coming of Jesus Christ in glory. And he can still be sorrowful if these Christians aren't walking in visible love together, side by side. The question is, why? Why does this one issue so affect Paul's joy that it will be incomplete if there isn't genuine love and unity in this church in Philippi? And the answer is simple. It's striking. This affects Paul's joy more than anything else, but it's not just sentimental. It affects Paul's joy more than anything else because he cares about the greatness and glory of Christ more than he cares about anything else. Now, let me try and explain that. Paul doesn't want to just go to heaven when he dies. And Paul doesn't just want to have his sins forgiven. He wants everyone to know how great Christ is. He wants everyone to be worshiping Christ. He wants everyone to have eternal life. And, and the loving, visible, astonishingly durable unity of these Christians in Philippi, it's the sign that will help accomplish all those things. It's the sign that will help bring other people to Christ. Do, do you see it? My, my loving you, this gets really practical, Cedarview. My loving you isn't an issue of whether or not you're lovable. My loving you isn't an issue of whether you've been nice to me or mean to me. My loving you is first and foremost an issue of whether or not I love Jesus and whether I care about his glory covering all the earth. And if that isn't happening, it's a sin for me to feel joyful. I ought to mourn. I shouldn't be able to rest at night. The glory of Jesus is at stake. I mean, I mean, our durable, constant unitedness in love is a sign that will convict people everywhere, inside the church and outside the church, of how wonderful Jesus Christ truly is. It means, that kind of unity means, Jesus Christ is so wonderful to me that I will gladly swallow all my pride and consider others, even my enemies, better than myself. 
Christ's glory counts so much more than my own rights. That's how you tell if the Holy Spirit's at work in your life. That's what points to Jesus. Because this world doesn't see that kind of self-giving love anywhere else. This is a world marked by strife. We all know it. Watch the news. Pick any city you want to pick. This world is marked by self-assertiveness. People are proud to march for anything and call it their rights. Between nations, this manifests itself in war. In families, it manifests itself in marital breakdown and redefining the family. In the world of commerce and business, it manifests itself in disputes and strikes. All of these are manifestations in this fallen world of self and pride and greed. And none of this makes obvious the surpassing greatness of Christ. None of it. That's why Paul's joy, he says, is made complete. When in this one place on earth, the church of Jesus Christ, and he's writing to the specific congregation at Philippi, there's this display of the new life of Jesus in the relationships in the body of Christ. The sign. The sign finally has a chance to, to shine and people can see the difference Jesus makes. Okay, point number two. Unity in Christ doesn't make us all think alike, but it makes us all mind the same thing. Those aren't the same. Look at Philippians 2, 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind. There's where he says it clearly. Having the same love, being full accord, and here it is again, of one mind. We, we need to know what Paul means and what he doesn't mean. I mean, we're not all the same. I think that's obvious. We think differently on different subjects. We vote differently in different elections. We have different views on all sorts of issues. Sometimes we think very differently. But there's one thing we all love, Paul says, and there's one thing we all mind so much so that it overrides the things that normally split and divide. That's what Paul is getting at. We don't all think alike, but we are all devoted to minding, uh, tending, being governed by one overriding passion. In other words, we care more about displaying Christ than protecting our own viewpoints. It's interesting. I'm not very good at this, but you can look it up in different works. And if you read this sentence as closely to the, the Greek in the order of the words, it, it, it's terrible, terrible English. But it would read something like this. That Philippians 2.2, 2, it would read something like this. Make complete my joy that the same thing you think, the same love having, as one's joined in soul, listen, the one thing thinking. 
That's it exactly. The one thing, thinking. There are lots of things which would divide if we were all thinking about those things, but we're not. We could all remember things done to us that would keep our hearts bitter and churning, but we aren't. We aren't thinking about those things because we love Jesus too much to grieve him by focusing on those things. No, we are all busy the one thing thinking. And the one thing that we're thinking all the time is, is this. How can we so deliriously, unreasonably, unexpectedly manifest love and grace to everyone in the church so that those outside can't help but know our love is supernatural and Christ-given? If I'm thinking about me, this will never happen. If I'm in love with Jesus, it ought to. I think about this a lot, even in this COVID situation. I, I'm, I'm not at all on social media, but I, I, I have shown to me the kind of things that people think and the division the division over how churches respond. And, and everybody lines up in different camps. And one camp thinks the other doesn't have enough faith. And one camp thinks the other doesn't care enough about safety. You know how it goes. You've seen the posts. You look at the internet. You see all these things. My submission to you is this. COVID, COVID isn't Satan's work. The division in the church over COVID, that's Satan's work. And we need sometimes, don't we, kneel by your bed and just say, forgive us our texts as we forgive those who text against us, right? Forgive us our posts as we forgive those who post against us. Everybody's got different views. That's fine. But we are a church of the one thing thinking. How do we make Jesus look great and wonderful through the unity that he provides, overriding everything, overriding everything that divides us. Is it kind, what I'm saying? Is it loving? Is it putting others first? That's what Paul says is the mark. Okay, three. Lord, make my life a sign of your power and grace. How the world can tell if I've been to the cross of Christ. How the world can tell if I've been to the cross of Christ. Let's look at verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in, in that, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not that's what we normally do, not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of, of others. Re read those words over and over when you get a chance. As far as I know, they are the only measuring stick of whether you are growing in Christ and being led by the Spirit. And, and not many are anxious to pay 
the price of deep discipleship and conformity to Christ. We know, we know that this kind of spirituality is rare because Paul tells us that it's rare. Look at these words in Philippians 2, 19 to 21. Look what he says here. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Then look what he says. I have, I have no one... I have no one like him. People like Timothy, he says, they don't grow on trees. Who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Look at these closing words. They're sad. They all, these are people Paul knows and works with. They all, they seek their own interests. Is that us? They, they seek their own interests. Not those of Jesus Christ. When Paul says most people he knew were seeking their own interests, 21, he doesn't mean they were bank robbers or rapists. He means they were professing Christians, sounds like they were fellow workers, but they allowed their own concerns and their own rights to overrule their passion to exalt Jesus Christ. They said they wanted to exalt Jesus Christ. They talked about Jesus Christ, but all the while, they were filling their lives up with their own interests and concerns and rights. You can't exalt Christ and cater to your own agenda. You can't exalt Christ and cater to your own agenda. And then, and then Paul says, Timothy's devotion stood out very, very noticeably. He said Timothy had a love for these Christians that was rare. He couldn't, he says he couldn't think of another person who cared like Timothy. Now, why did Timothy care so much? If he's so unique, why did Timothy care and love so much? And the answer fits in exactly with what we've been studying. Timothy cared for these Christians so deeply not because they were lovable and not because Timothy was just one of those naturally social types. Paul says Timothy cared for them so deeply because it's in the last part of 21, he was sharing, seeking the interests of Christ. 21, he was seeking the interests of Christ. So, so because Timothy loved Jesus, he was, he, remember, he was thinking the one thing. The one thing thinking. He was, he was flying the flag of the difference Jesus makes. He was of one soul and mind with these people because that's what made Jesus look marvelous. And that's what he cared about. In a world full of strife and division. So that's how people will know if the Holy Spirit's at work in my mind and in yours. That's how the world will know if we have really been to the cross of Jesus or do we just sing about it. See, the world can't see my inner forgiveness. Praise God, I came to Christ. The, the, the record is clear, clean. But the world can't see that. It's invisible to them. But there is something they can see. We sing about it all the time. When we used to gather together and we would celebrate the Lord's Supper Maybe it's time to just stop the music and think deeply about those words. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain, 
I count but loss, and here's the sentence, and pour contempt on all my pride. It's a wonderful example what it looks like when the Holy Spirit works in your mind. Let's pray. We can pray at the close of a sermon because it's what preachers do when they're wrapping up a message. But we bow before you because primarily we sense a call here that is it's just a bit too big for us. We are self-centered creatures. We got that from Adam. We can make it sound righteous. We can say it's convictions. We can say it's good for others that I am this. We can rationalize it in a billion ways. But I pray that at least in Cedarview Community Church, we will learn what it really means to put the interests of others above ourselves, to speak, to text, to Instagram, to Facebook with love and grace and humility. That the world will see not just our convictions by what we say, but they'll see the truth of our convictions by the way they've changed our hearts. So come, take this word. We've studied it. We, we, we've studied it on, on Wednesday nights in our devotional refresh. Come and take the word like seed, plant it in all of our hearts and Oh God, let it multiply. Let it take over. Let it rule. Let it dominate. Make it for us the one thing thinking. Do that, I pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.